You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 95. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. This is the third part of my interview with the amazing Phil Lamar. Phil has played major roles in such animated shows as Futurama, Justice League, Star Wars Clone Wars, and Samurai Jack. In the last episode, Phil and I discussed how his passion for improvisational acting helped shape the trajectory of his early acting career. We also discussed how the difficulties he faced during that time helped him face and eventually let go of the judgments that were holding back his progress towards becoming a professional actor. In this episode, I ask Phil what inspired him to become an actor in the first place. This is a very important question to ask, especially of oneself. Often people have a vague notion that they'd like to try acting because it looks like fun, or maybe they're interested in getting attention or in becoming famous. However, pursuing acting as a career can be a very challenging road to travel, and during times of adversity, one's conviction can really be tested. I have found that when the going gets tough, when the hardships increase, when it's not clear what can help you continue on in the face of difficulties or discouragement, it is very important to have solid reasons for what you are doing so you can remind yourself why acting is so important to you. In this section of our interview, Phil is generous enough to share with us the single, fascinating experience he had which drove him to pursue an acting career. I think you'll find that hearing what inspired Phil to pursue acting will help you discover your own inspiration as well. And now, the feature segment. So let's talk a little bit about those intangibles, yeah. that sort of notion of the mindset. And, and usually what I like to ask is, if it's possible for you to articulate it, what inspired you to become an actor? Um, that's, well, I guess I, it's funny because I'm trying to think, is there any other? No, I, I have one single moment. Mm -hmm. I have one story that I've been telling since I was 12. And it's, it, and it's the only answer I can give to that question. Mm -hmm. um, I did a play in eighth grade at my, my school um, called The Phantom Tollbooth. I had auditioned for, because I love the book. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's one of the, my totems. There's two things I carry with me wherever I go, uh, you know, wherever I live. Mm -hmm. A copy of The Phantom Tollbooth and a copy of Alice in Wonderland. Mm, okay. And I love this book. There was this little, great little character towards the end of the story that I really wanted to play. I auditioned and wound up getting one of the leads instead. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny because all through the rehearsal process, out of the corner of my eye, I was watching the guy who got my part. And I was like, dude, he's not doing it right. <laughs> Ugh. 
Jesus, you're killing the joke. <laughs> All right, whatever. Okay, let, me, let me focus on the, the monologue. <laughs> and the play opened with my character doing a monologue to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the play begins, you know, it goes dark, goes quiet, curtains open, spotlight comes on, I walk out, and I stand on the stage for 30 seconds. And then start the monologue. Yeah, what does it say? A minute. 60 seconds. Seems like a long time when you're waiting for something to happen, doesn't it? And in that moment, between when the curtains opened and when I began speaking, it was transformative. I just remember feeling the... I couldn't see the audience at all. Mm-hmm. There's a spotlight in my face. Mm-hmm. And they're in the black. I... Could physically feel their energy come up over the f- front of the stage like like water, touch my toes, and energize my body in a way I had never felt before or since. Mm-hmm. And basically, I've been chasing that dragon ever since. Yeah, I mean, were you standing there for only thirty seconds? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you stood there for 30 seconds, but, but we then you said 60. Isn't that brilliant? Because that is perceptually what it was like to the audience. Because right. to actually make an audience sit there for 60 seconds. Then you're moving into discomfort. Yeah. And that wasn't really the purpose. Right, but 30 seconds is enough for them to think it was 60. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love that. That's such good theater technique. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. But that, that moment is what inspired me. Uh, that's it's funny. My uh, production company is called Curtain Light Entertainment. Gotcha. As an homage to that. As an homage to that. Um, yes, I understand that uh, because I had a similar experience myself. Oh, really? I was uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I was a shy little boy. Um, I'm strange. I'm an introvert. I'm totally not an extrovert. Um, I'd much rather just be by myself. Mm -hmm. But my family was very heavily involved in the opera in Chicago. So my father, my grandfather rather, commissioned all the critical editions of Verdi's operas, and he had all the cast parties at his house. So as a young child, I'm around all these opera singers, and they always terrify me with their huge voices. (laughs) Um, But when I was in middle school, they they wanted me to be an extra in the opera, what's called a supernumerary. And all you had to do was fit the costume, and I was a skinny little kid, so I could fit almost anything. Right. Um, And I was terrified. There was no way I wanted to do it. But eventually, somehow they talked me into it, and I got backstage at the opera. And being backstage at the opera, it's not like anything else. It's a city back there. Like, you understand why the Phantom could hide, because there's so (laughs) much room. And the crazy thing was people would go up these elevators to get to their dressing rooms. Right. They would come back down, and they'd look like Henry VIII. Wow. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, how did you do that? And then we'd go out on stage, and it was that same thing. I was terrified that everyone would be staring at me. Right. But it's an opera house. It's like 3,000 seats. And so there's lights, and you can't see anything. Right, But you can feel. You can feel what's coming at you. Mm -hmm. And then being there, and like the first opera I was in was with Placido Domingo. Really? It was just, I mean, we're doing Tosca, and I come out at the end of the first act as part of the procession as one of the acolytes. It's just craziness. And so, you know, when you're on that sort of level, you go, "Uh uh-oh. 
I see the power of this right. now. And then when I, I did like three operas when I was in middle school and then mm. freshman year of high school, I was too big to be the kid at the opera. Oh. So it was time to do theater and, in high school. Now, while you were doing the opera stuff, uh, did you do any other performance at that time? No. Really? It was no. just that? Oh, just that. Okay. I wasn't, um, because I, it was like 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Right. Um, I was a computer nerd. I didn't, like, I, it didn't... It, it wasn't didn't, part of your world. No, I was terribly shy. I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want anyone look at me, looking at me. Right. But I so fell in love with being backstage at the opera, being part of the people who helped make the illusion right. for everybody else. That I was like, this is cool, dude. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, freshman high school start auditioning for plays. And I was terrible. I was a terrible actor. But I learned over those <laughs> years in high school. I just kept, because I remember that experience. I just kept trying to see if I could figure it out. Isn't that funny? And there's videotape that shows how terrible I was. You know, like it, I mean, it was I was awful. But you were heading towards something. It's like there's a feeling that I'm reaching for. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Isn't that funny? This is something that, conceptually speaking prior to the opera experience, you would have been deathly afraid of. Yeah, no way. And now you are subjecting yourself to possible rejection Mm -hmm. and criticism, Mm -hmm. like making yourself a target. Social death. Right. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, I don't know what your school like, but in most schools, doing theater wasn't necessarily cool. Oh, no. First time I had to step on stage, uh, one of the, I don't know, I think it was maybe my sophomore year or something, we did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. (laughs) Okay. And I played Hamlet. In Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And my outfit was this gorgeous black velvet with gold uh, thread doublet. Right. And black tights with no pants. Right. Right? And every year they would do a teaser for the play for the entire school to try to invite people to the play. And the first thing they did was for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is they had a scene of me and Ophelia you know, sort of flitting about the stage. (laughs) And then Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come on and start doing their funny banter. So the first thing that happens is I have to jump on stage in a spotlight mm-hmm. with nothing but basically a dance belt on and tights in front of the entire school. This is a recipe for disaster, right? right? I mean, right. like, this is social death incarnate. Mm-hmm. But at, I, I had, I, there, <laughs> I'd already gotten my hits, I guess. Right. And so at that point, I was like, I was, you know, I'd, first hits free. And right. at that point, it was over. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I guess I got to go forward with this. There are much greater things at work yeah. than even just, and that's, a, that, that I think is why for a lot of people, theater is that saving grace during those really hard years. Because what's the thing when you're a teen? Nothing is more important than what you're feeling right now. So-and-so looked at me. Oh my God, I am on top of the world. Like, so-and-so didn't look at me. I will never, ever. <laughs> but having that thing, having that theater, like either you're part of a group thing mm-hmm. or you have that moment like we had that is so much greater than, yeah, 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 I'm, I'll probably be embarrassed, I'll probably be ridiculed, whatever. It pales in comparison to the power. I, I am actually playing Hamlet. Right? <laughs> you know they don't understand, but you're tapped into something. Yeah. So large. Yeah. He's not even the main character in this play, but he is still, <laughs> still Hamlet. Hamlet. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So that that experience, before you had that experience with the with the energy coming over the stage for you, mm-hmm. um, did you have a penchant for performing or or not that I not that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. Um like I said before, I mean, we would do the little tape recording thing with my right. friends, but none of us thought of ourselves as performers. Right. And my friends who I did that with, none of them ever did plays or anything else. It was just play. Right. You were just playing around. Yeah. 
And and the attraction to doing this production of the Phantom Tollbooth was because it was a totem of yours, right? It was because I loved the book. Right. It was not a chance to get on stage or the fact that I, you know that oh I like theater or anything. I have no conscious idea of like seeing a play and like oh I want to be part of that. It was all just really sort of. You know, I love this story. Right. I know what this story needs in order for it to be done well. He's not doing it right. <laughs> well, and it's funny because it's sort of informed my acting ever since. I consider myself a very text-based actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm all about what's the writer trying to do? What's the writer, you know, which at times um, doesn't serve me, uh, especially... It, when the text is not so good. Exactly. <laughs> you find yourself being limited yeah. by the quality of the text. And especially coming from an improv comedy background where people expect you to elevate the material or just just make it your own. Yeah. It's like... Well, but he, they've written, it's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> then why did you give it to me? Right. Why, why, you can't do your own job? Why do I have to do your job for you? Oh, actually, that's funny. One of the, the things that's, because I remember very little from my career, and especially things I didn't get. Mm-hmm. I remember auditioning for Modern Family. Oh, my God. Before it went on the air. Okay. Um, it was the Eric Stone Street character. Okay. And I heard about this later that Eric Stone Street came in and killed it. Uh-huh. But somebody at the studio was just like, I don't know. Does he have to be fat? You know, or whatever. So they made them go back and look again. Yeah, yeah. And so they said, all right, we're looking at this character for one of the, the, you know, the gay uh, dads. Um, and I read the scripts like, oh, this, these are all like, this guy's, this guy's a heavy guy. So I'll just say, I'm not, I'm, I, I can't, it's like, no, 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 we're not going that way anymore. Well, but this, you just handed me four pages of fat jokes. <laughs> How, what's fat, my earlobe? Right, How I'm supposed to, what, 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 do you, what do you want me to do with this? Like, well, don't play him heavy. <laughs> well, then it's not going to be funny. <laughs> right. And in retrospect, hearing the story, I'm like, oh, no, oh. they knew. Yeah, it was it was basically stacking the deck for Eric Sonstrup. It's like, look, we brought in all these other people. None of them are quite as funny, are they? Yeah, because you got a bunch of skinny people, <laughs> black people, Chinese people, all telling fat jokes. Uh, so. They set you up for a bit of a fall, but yeah. it was for a noble cause, I guess. Yes, <laughs> and he's so good. He's yeah. so good. But it's it it's it is interesting. Um, there will be times coming things from comedy where because generally speaking in on camera stuff you are typed mm-hmm. you know by and large we're all typed and it's a wonderful thing about voiceover is that you get to escape that box mm-hmm. you know the vast majority of the time um, and I have friends black guys about the same build as me who I've known for 20 plus years just from auditions mm-hmm. We're audition buddies. Yeah. Hey, man, how you doing? Hey, what happened? I heard you went through a divorce. Oh, cool, yeah. No, remarried again. Oh, cool, that's a baby, you know? <laughs> like, we have shared our lives yeah. in waiting rooms. Wow. Um, but there will be calls occasionally for where they're stuck. They can't cast something. And they decide, let's just go funny. And it will be me, uh, Amy Hill, who is a friend of mine who's half Japanese, It'll be men, women, all improv people. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim Bagley. So like all of these people who just 
basically they're saying, just make it funny. Please, Save God, us. just make it funny. <laughs> like, I know it's written as, you know, a 70-year-old, uh, you know, wasp. We're throwing that out. As long as you can make it funny, yeah. you know. And it is, it is fascinating that those are the, the times that I break out of it. Although, like I said, in voiceover, you're also free to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, who did I have this conversation with? And I will, I will admit that it is a, a double-edged sword in the sense that there are a lot of times uh, where I will audition for a character, although I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have played a very wide range of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... And of the human ones, some of <laughs> they've been, you know, many races. I've, I've you know, Samurai Jack was Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, John Stewart was African American. Um, but I've also played, you know, the um, character Bowlby on Jimmy Neutron was a small boy from a little, some unknown Middle European country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think have felt the limitation the least. I mean, not the least, but like very, very little. But every once in a while. Like, for instance, when you do second and third characters on an animated show. Mm-hmm. And I, I became aware of it a f- several years back. And so, like, on a secondary character who's just sort of in the background, I would specifically do a voice that did not sound black. Mm. That was not, well, how do you phrase that? That was not noticeably ethnic. Mm-hmm. You know, in any way, there would be, the character would be would have a voice like this, and I would I swear to you, seventy percent of the time they would animate it black. Really, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, are they getting a cast? But but larger than that, there is there is the thing where most of the time, as a black voice actor, I'm going up for black parts. There are other times now that I've sort of established myself where I'll read, you know, for the lead, whatever the lead is. But generally speaking, and and again, like I said, this is a double-edged sword because if there's, if Kick Batowski has a black friend, they're going to read the black guys first. Mm -hmm. And perhaps only because of, you know, political correctness things that in principle, I actually don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think whoever can do the character best should be able to do the character. Mm-hmm. But from a pragmatic nuts and bolts pay my mortgage uh, standpoint, I would much rather um, compete in the small pool mm-hmm. of me, Kevin Michael Richardson, and you know Bumper Robinson than to compete against them and you and John DiMaggio and everybody else, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so, to, to be real about it, mm-hmm. it cuts both ways. But it is, I personally think that there is a benefit to at least not limiting yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, I have to know that I can do, I can do John Stewart, mm-hmm. and I can make this the voice of a black man. Mm-hmm. But I can also change that voice and, you know, do a character, you know, because that's the thing. They need two other characters out of me. Mm-hmm. And 
on the good shows, they're not going to animate him black just because I'm black. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to have the range. Yeah. I need to be able to play young. I need to be able to play old. Um, and I think from a, you know, again, pragmatic standpoint, it widens your job opportunities, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it's, it's funny. I had a, a young guy come up to me after, uh, one of the improv shows we did the other day. He's like, I'm really interested, young black guy. I'm really interested in getting um, into voiceover things. So, I mean, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about, you know, how I could get casted in roles that, uh, you know, like the way you do. And I, I don't know this person. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was a friend of, for somebody. And normally, I'm not going to, Tell people I don't know the truth. Um, and the thing is, I also don't know what his level of skill is, mm -hmm. but for some reason I felt compelled to tell him. It's like, well, the first thing I would tell you is you need to be able to not say casted. Right. You know, there may be time. And, and he's like, what? It's like, what, what you said is some black English, mm -hmm. which in certain uh, scenarios will be a benefit. Like the boondocks. Right. You're going to need to, but you need to be able to also know that you're saying that. That has to be a choice. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to turn it off. When right. You yeah. You, and that's true of anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you're Chris Rock doing stand-up on stage, you have to be able to modulate yourself. You got to, because the crowd isn't always going, if I just do everything, if I do everything screaming, I'm going to lose the crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to know when to go down and when to go up, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not about ethnicity or keeping it real or whatever as much as it is skill. Mm -hmm. Your skill as a performer is to be able to modulate your tool, mm -hmm. you know, in whatever way mm -hmm. you can. And it's funny because I didn't actually get a chance to sit down with him. Although we did talk enough for me to explain, it's like, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm saying you need to know what you can do and be able to control what you can do. Mm -hmm. And I would tell that to anybody. Anybody. You know? Uh, who was I talking to? It was a, a young woman from Texas who went to school in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And she had almost no noticeable Southern accent. Mm -hmm. And she's not an actress. Mm -hmm. I was just like, wow, that's fascinating. She's like, yeah. Said, I think I had a little bit of an accent when I went to Texas, when I grew up in Texas, but then when I went to Mississippi and heard all those people talking, I said, ooh, I do not want to sound like this. And I think I consciously Turned made a decision off. to shut it off. Yeah. And, and to, for me, as a person who's always been interested in voices and accents and stuff, um, I, f I love that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I did work in the early 90s with a group that was predominantly, uh, a predominantly Japanese improv troupe. Hmm. They were uh, like six Japanese actors, and then they had one white guy, one black guy, one Mexican guy. <laughs> so that, because a lot of it was focused on race. Yeah. And so, like, you know, we were the, we were the, the tokens. tokens. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing to see that culture. And they were, by and large, second generation. Mm -hmm. But it was amazing because they didn't, I think most of them didn't speak Japanese. Mm. But there was a, a vocal quality to, and I've now started to identify it, second generation yeah. uh, vocal stuff. I'm sure you're raised, but like um, a person who grew up in a Japanese speaking household mm -hmm. but doesn't speak Japanese speaks English in a different way. Yes, they do. You know? It's sort of like if they were Chinese, the cast of Mulan. Right. Right. They're not speaking with any kind of stereotypical or ethnic Chinese accent, 
But you can tell those are Asian American actors. Like, right. You can tell they're not white people. Yes. And and uh, that's a there's a subtle thing there that is absolutely noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's true of anything. Of course, when it's a white actor, we don't subscribe it to we don't ascribe it to nationality. We ascribe it to regionality. Right. So you know? I had to learn how to turn off my Midwestern accent. Okay. Right, as a Chicagoan, right? Oh, the talks flat about balls. the bears and the and the bulls and things. And we, well, did you ever have that accent? Oh, yes, I did. Did you really? Oh, yeah. And the reason I found out is because we sang Mozart's Requiem in high school. Right. And I was a huge fan of the Amadeus movie, right. where they go through the whole sequence where they compose the confutatis, and Mozart's dying in his bed, and Salieri is helping him write it, and he's like, you know, sing it for me, confutatis, maledictis, flamis acribus adictis. And of course, we recorded it, and then we got the tape back, and. It came back, confitatis, <laughs> maledictis, flammy sacribus addictis. And I was like, I am never going to sound like that again. Wow. Like, that's unacceptable. Isn't that funny? Yeah. But then I have to pull it out when I need it, when they need the Chicago accent. And that's the thing. You can't kill that part of yourself. No. You just have to be able to control it. Yeah. But that's yeah. why I walk into restaurants here in, in L.A. and people think I'm British. Right. And I'm like, clearly you've never met a British person <laughs> because I may speak clearly, but I'm not British. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's bearing, it's rhythm, mm-hmm. you know. Becoming aware of your own accent or regionalisms is one of the first things you need to do as an aspiring voice actor. Too often I work with students who have not taken the time to really listen to themselves and to figure out what they sound like to other people. Recording yourself is essential. You must listen to your voice once it is recorded with a critical ear. You need to develop a fascination with the elements that make up the sound of your voice, including placement, articulation, intonation, and rhythm. Such detailed attention to the way you sound will give you more control over how you speak and is the first step towards being able to expand your range of characters. In the next episode, I ask Phil to talk with me about the unique challenges he has had to face as an African-American actor in Hollywood. We discuss many important topics, including casting, discrimination, and the importance of working with intelligent, talented people. It's an enlightening conversation, no matter what your ethnicity happens to be and I think it will benefit many of my listeners. Until then, all the best to you in your voice acting endeavors, and I'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>